All right, well, let's get started today. I want to talk today today about what really matters. What really matters. As we go through life, we're always asking that question, what really matters? What's really important? What's kind of important? What's so, so important? And what is like not at all important? So we ask that question all the time. What really matters? Well, it is recorded that there were three knights of King Arthur's Knights of the Round Table who were sent on a very special quest to find and bring back what is referred to as the Holy Grail. These three knights were Sir Bors, Sir Galahad, and Sir Percival. And it was Sir Percival who wrote later, after leaving the gates of Camelot behind him, had not been gone long, and he began to wonder, why have I been assigned this task? Why, why am I one of the three chosen for this? And he wrote this, he said, at that time, then every evil word I had spoken once and every evil thought I had thought of old and every evil deed I ever did awoke and cried, this quest is not for thee. Now, every one of us deals with the issue of our own mistakes and our own sin, the things that we do wrong. We've made bad decisions in our life, every one of us have, and we're confronted with the reality of that. We wonder if we can overcome the bad by possibly doing more good things, like there's a, a scale somewhere. We worry about the consequences of those decisions. And we worry if we'll ever feel clean or pure or worthy ever again. And some people get really confused, not only about their own bad decisions, but about other people's bad decisions. And we think of a guy named Job in the Bible. And he had some friends who kept telling him, Job... All this stuff, this calamity that's come on you, the crops are gone, the, the herds are gone, even your children, all this bad stuff that's happening. He said, Job, they said, Job, it's because of your sin, man. It's because you're a bad dude. You've been doing stuff wrong, and it, God's getting you. And they were obviously quite mistaken because Job understood what would later be recorded in the book of Isaiah, chapter 44 and verse 22. This is what God says to the prophet to tell the nation of Israel. He says, I have swept away your offenses like a cloud, your sins like the morning mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Isn't that good news? The Bible tells us our, our sin is, is, is like that cloud. And, and I think Job's friends thought that a person's sin is this barrier between us and God. That sin is this permanent obstacle that you really can't really do anything about. But here, the Word tells us that God takes that barrier, that sin, and He wipes it away like a cloud. The cloud is here, and then it's gone. The morning mist is there, and then it's gone. He says, that's what I've done with your sin, because I have redeemed you. I have purchased you for myself. There was a guy named James Cannington. He was born in 1847 in England. And as he grew and became an adult, God called him to ministry. He was ordained in the Anglican Church of England. And as just a young man in his 30s, he was sent to be the bishop over East Africa for the Anglican Church. 
And as he and the people with him were traveling through the nation of Uganda, they were captured by one of the warlords there and they were treating, treated terribly and actually became martyrs for the gospel. And at the age of 38 years old, this man, James Kennington, right before he became a martyr himself, grabbed a piece of paper and he wrote this. He said, if this be the last chapter of my earthly history, then the next will be the first page of the heavenly. No blots, no smudges, no incoherence, but sweet converse in the presence of the Lamb. That's the testimony of every one of us who know Christ. That it is Christ who has taken away all of the blots and the blemishes and all of the, all the junk that we created. And he says, I've taken it and I've, I've passed it away. I've, I've taken it from you just like pushing a cloud out of the way. And that's why we have freedom with God. And that's what's important. Is that we understand that our communion with God and our fellowship with God is not based on us. Like what we've done or what we can do. But it's based on him. And what he has done and what he will do. It is God who sent his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. God sent his son to die on the cross for our sin because our death would never pay the price for our sin. And so he took the spotless, unblemished lamb of God and sacrificed him for our sin. And that is what causes us to live a life of sinlessness because God has taken away our sin. It's not because we haven't sinned. And that's what's really important. But after Jesus died on the cross and he went and was ascended back into heaven, there was this event that happened. It was called the day of Pentecost. And I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles, please, to the, to the book of Acts. It's right after all the Gospels, the book of Acts in chapter number two, and what happens after Jesus goes back into heaven is that this event called the day of Pentecost came, and that's when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the disciples. About 120 people gathered and praying in an upper room, and it was a, it was a great event, but there were people that were watching and listening, and it was thousands of people, and in that moment, Peter stands up, the apostle Peter, and he preaches the, the gospel. He preaches about you know, how the, the prophets had told about this Messiah and that Jesus is that Messiah and he died on the cross for our sins. And what we've got to do is place our faith in him and his work on the cross in order to be right with God. In order for that, for that cloud of sin to be pushed out of the way, we've got to accept God's way. And that is through Christ. And in that moment, after that sermon, 3,000 people instantly transitioned and put their life and their trust in Christ, and they were converted to Christianity. 3,000 people in, in just one moment. Isn't that fantastic? And then the, the next thing that happens is that the Bible gives us kind of a snapshot of what those people did. Not the next day, but over a period of time. So the Luke, uh, the physician, is writing the book of Acts, and so he's He's accounting for this, these events of Christ's ascension back into heaven, the day of Pentecost, Peter's sermon, 3,000 people born again. And then he says, okay, now what follows was this, this is what people did over a period of time. It's kind of like a snapshot. So let's read Acts chapter 2. We'll start with verse number 42 and we'll go to 47. 
He says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions and gave to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. What an opportunity to see that snapshot, that kind of, this was life in the, uh, in the first century. This is what they did. And I would say that if we were to, to try and capsulize that snapshot and to say, well, what were the disciples doing? What were these new Christians doing? I would say it would be this simple. They were committed to what God is committed to. The things that they did were simply what God says, these things are important. There are things that are important. There are things that are lesser important. He says, these things are important. I just want to bring out three of them real fast. The first thing is the message. They were committed to the message because God is committed to the message. And what is the message? The message is the word of God, his word. They were eager to learn. They were eager to say, tell us more about Jesus. Tell us more about this Old Testament prophecies about this guy named Jesus and who's now at the center of our lives. Tell us more. We want to learn all of these things about him. What did he say and how did he act and how did he deal with this problem? They were always wanting to learn and grow because they wanted to know God's word. God cannot be separated from his word. He, there's, there's no divorce. There's, there's no room between God and his word. They are inseparable. Have you, ever, have you ever heard the expression, he's a man of his word? That's when you, you say that about somebody who says, if they say it, it they're going to do it. If they say it, it's, it's, go, it's gold. It's like the old thing that years ago, they didn't actually usually have a contract. It was this. That was all the contract you needed. You shook a man's hand on an agreement, it's done. God cannot be separated from his word. He is jealous of his word. He takes his, the word very seriously. In fact, Jesus said, not even a comma from the Old Testament will not be fulfilled. That's what Jesus said. He says, every comma that's, that's in the Old Testament, he said, it's meaningful. It has a purpose, and it's going to be fulfilled. And that's powerful. The word tells us in Jeremiah 1.12, he says, I am watching to see that my word is fulfilled. That's powerful. God says, I'm watching to see that my word is fulfilled. When God gives you a promise, it's for real. When God gives you a promise, you can bank on it. Now, we don't know the timing, but we know that when God promises, it's going to happen. And so our job is not to, to try and always like figure out everything, but our job is to simply say, I'm going to walk by faith and God, you have the responsibility of fulfilling your promise. He's watching over his word. And David wrote in Psalm 119, 105, he says, your word is like a lamp for my feet and a light to my path. Your word is that illumination that shows me where to go and where not to go. When I'm walking in a certain direction, all of a sudden there's no light in front of me. There's, there, it seems 
He says, no, I need to follow the word of God and how you're leading me and guiding me. It's that word that illuminates our path. The Bible tells us in Isaiah 55, it says, as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed to the sower and bread for the eater. So is my word that does not go out of my mouth. It, it goes out of my mouth and it will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. God is saying, just like the rain. Man, I was praying for rain last night. I'm like, I'm looking at my yard and I'm like, dude, please, Lord. I got in my car. I had to go down to the Civic Center to get Lisa. And, and I went down to the end of the road and that's where it was raining. The closer I got to the Civic Center, the rain got heavier and heavier and heavier. I'm like, that's great. That's great. Lisa's on a hurt foot, hobbling out of the Civic Center. This is going to be, oh, just, we're going to get wet. And the Lord was faithful and kind to just let it ease up a little bit. And I got into a spot where nobody else was, and I backed the car right up underneath the awning, and I was like, there is a God. And when we got home, it rained at my house. There is a God. He said, just like the rain is sent, and it does not return back to the clouds without doing what it was supposed to do. He said, that's the same way my word is. I send it forth, and it does what I want it to do. Even as we were praising and worshiping and song and singing. God began to just really speak to us about when the Holy Spirit moves, something's going to break, right? And I just thought of all the addictions that people have. Hey, we all got stuff, right? That's a great time to just stay quiet because people might think you got more stuff than they got stuff. <laughs> we all got some baggage. We all got some stuff, right? We're just dealing with it. And God says, I... If it's holding you back from fulfilling your purpose, you give me half a chance. God's saying, I'll break that off of you. And there are some addictions that God wants to break off. As we were praying, I, I, I was very specific. I had my hands. I was very specific. There's something I'm, I'm really, God has shown me in the last couple of years about my life. And I'm saying, God, I, I am no longer inadequate. I'm break, that, that's done. What, what is it? What is it that God has sent his word to you? And that thing's going to break. Thing's going to go. But you know what happens next? We got to learn how to live, right? We got to learn how to live a new way. Because now suddenly we can't use the crutch, well, that's just the way I am, or that's the way I've always been, or hey, you know, my family, or hey, you know how I was raised, or hey, that thing that happened in my life, that's just the way I am. Now God says, no, I break that off of you. Now we learn to walk in newness of life. That's what Romans says. We are baptized showing that we are dead to the old way, and now we walk in a newness of life with Christ. That's what God's called us to do. He doesn't send his word for no reason. He sends it so that it returns to him having accomplished what it's sent out to do. So what is it in your life that word has been sent to? 
that God is saying, I'm, I'm breaking that. Well, the second thing that, was, that is important to God and became important to the disciples was the presence, his Holy Spirit. Some ask the question, trying to trick people, and, and they say, is there anything that God can't do? That's one of those, like, you know, I think if, no matter how you answer this, I got gotcha. you. Because you're going to say no, and then I'm going to say something really intelligent, like, can he make a stone he can't pick up? Somebody asks you the question, is there anything God cannot do? There's only one answer to that question. It is a loud and resounding yes. Is there anything God cannot do? The answer is yes. And that will shock them. And now you have their attention. And then you follow it up by this. 2 Timothy 2.12 says... If we are unfaithful, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. God cannot be unfaithful. It is impossible. God, God can't say something and then go, yeah, I changed my mind. It seemed good at the moment, but now it's different. God doesn't do that. He doesn't make a, a commitment to you and say, I will always be with you and go, yeah, I changed my mind. He cannot be unfaithful. It is impossible. Hebrews 6, 8 says it is impossible for God to lie. And so we know that God cannot be unfaithful and he cannot lie. He is, he is committed to the presence, his spirit living within us. His spirit dwelling among our fellowship. We see the illustration of this with the prophet Hosea. And uh, Hosea, man, this is just, it just kind of blows your mind a little bit. But God, God tells this Hosea, this prophet, he says, I want you to go marry an unfaithful woman. And I want you to have kids with her. Well, he does it. And then she goes into prostitution and he takes her back and goes, okay, hey, you're my wife. And he goes and gets her and brings her back. You're my wife. Whatever you did, you're my wife. And then she goes, oh, okay. And then she goes back into prostitution. And, he come, and it was, what was he doing? What was God doing? He was letting Hosea know, Hosea, now you know what I feel like. This is what Israel does. I've married you, Israel. I've married you. And you go off and do your own thing, and you go off and play the harlot. You go on other gods and other things and all these stuff that aren't important to me, that's wrong. He said, but I have remained faithful to you. I have not forsaken you. God is committed to us, his presence living inside of us and being with us all the time. You go all the way to the book of Revelation and Revelation chapter 2 and verses 3 and 4. We see what, what is spoken here and we, we know this many times. He says, you have persevered and endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. He's speaking to one of the churches, these, 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 these churches of the, old, of, the, of the New Testament. He says, you persevered. You've endured hardship. Yeah. You have not grown weary. Yeah. But then he follows it with this. He says, but you, I have this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. He's saying, you know how to endure. You know how to keep, keep going. But it's just become a grind. It's just like I'm, I'm going to gut this thing out. He's saying, but you've lost your first love. I'm just, I'm just, just going to live for Jesus. Just gonna, I'm just going to live for Jesus. <laughs> and he's going, 
You got any love? You ever, I mean, don't answer this question. Don't say amen now, but have you ever met anybody like that? They're living for Jesus. <clears throat> and you're going like, that's a bad testimony, isn't it? To a city, to a family. We're going to gut it out. He says, where's the love? The Holy Spirit is so committed to us to work within us, not so that we become hardened like we're going to grind this thing out until we die, but that we would love him more and more and more throughout our life. We just love him. That our love for him would grow and grow. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The third thing and the last thing, the fellowship. God's committed to the fellowship, the people of God. And so were the early disciples. They were like, man, we, we, need, we, we love getting together. We love being together. We love being the body of Christ. We love learning and growing and interacting with one another. We love the fellowship, and that's what God is so interested in. 2 Corinthians 13, 14, Paul ends this second letter to the Corinthians, the last verse. He says, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. The fellowship of the Holy Spirit. When we come together as the body of Christ, it's not just that we're a group but we are coming in the name of the Lord. Psalm 133, one says how good and pleasant it is for God's people to live together in unity. And what does that unity look like? Three things. Number one, it looks like an encounter with Jesus. Jesus said, if two or more of you gather in my name, I am there. I'm right there with you. And so that unity looks like an encounter with Jesus, not a endurance, but an encounter with God to where we say, God, what do you want today, right now? What is going on? What's coming up tomorrow? What do you, what do you want to reveal to me about my, the future of my marriage, my children, my, my college, my, my economy, my business, whatever it is? God, what is it? What are you doing in me right now? It's an encounter with Jesus. It's also an encounter with purpose. Remember the story about the four guys who had a friend? The friend was like, couldn't walk. And so they pick up his bed like a mat of some type. And they're trying to get him to Jesus. They, they can't get in, so they lower him down through the roof. You remember that? That's, that's the unity. Five guys wanting the same thing. One of them couldn't really help other than maybe just don't roll off the bed. That's what unity looks like. We're all doing our part to make the thing happen. Thirdly, it looks like an encounter with forgiveness. An encounter with forgiveness from God. God, I blew it. Sorry. That was bad. I did it again. Sorry. Please forgive me. But also forgiveness goes this way. We go to somebody and we go, I, I blew that. I messed it up. I said that. I, I, ah, was not good. I said that the wrong way. I was, I was angry. Please forgive me. I'm sorry. I've been doing this thing for a long time. I've been mistreating you. I'm sorry. That's an encounter. That's unity to where we don't let a wall be built between us brick on brick, brick on brick, brick on brick. We just tear those bricks down early. Please forgive me. And forgiveness between one another is just a way of kicking those bricks out of the way 
Because unforgiveness is like a wall between us. Forgiveness is the beauty of God working in fellowship. But it all starts with a personal decision to surrender to God. That's where it all starts. If we want the chains to be broken off of our lives, all that stuff that keeps us from serving God and fulfilling our purpose, it starts with just saying, God, I surrender to you. I surrender. Lord, I, I, my way's not working. I'm, I'm going to go your way. It starts by, by saying, you know what? I, I want to be committed to what really matters and committed to what God thinks really matters. And so, Lord, I've, I've got to rearrange what I'm doing. Some of you know, I, I, I meet with a guy, uh, you don't know him, but I meet with a guy every month and he's a coach. And, and so, and I just talk to him about my life, church, what's going on. And he helps me. And probably the, the biggest thing we talk about is what to eliminate. You, you might think, well, he'd, he'd say, well, you need to do this and you need to do that. And you need to do that. And you need to do this. He says, no, what do you need to get rid of, Chris? What do you need to get rid of? What do you need to delegate? What do you need to just stop doing? Because he always points me to what really matters. What is it that God's called you to do? And why are you doing things that God hasn't called you to do? And why are you doing other, some things that other people can do? It's the process of elimination. You know what? When we figure out what matters to God and we're focused on that, all of a sudden those things begin to fade away. But sometimes we got to kick them out of the door, right? Sometimes you just got to say, I really want to do that, but I shouldn't do that. I'm kicking it out the door. Be gone. May I ask you today, what, what is it that you need to kick out of the door so that you can focus on what God really wants you to focus on? Silence is golden when we're thinking. What is it God that's telling you? Well, as we were praising and worshiping, what is it that God said to you? You know what? I want to break that chain. Well, this is the moment right now. Let's let God do that. Let's God, let God tell us what really matters. And let's do it. I think we are. I think Hope Crossings as a body of people, we are doing that. But I'm saying this so that we will go beyond good. And when I say become great, that sounds so egotistical. I think, I think you know what I mean. I don't, I don't, I don't want to get, I don't want to do life good. I want to do life great because we serve a great God. He's a great God. And I just think he's, he says, you know what? You're my representative. God is, we are representing God and he's a great God. And so I think he wants our lives to be better than good. Great. Amen.